Thank you, Doug. Um, I speak for myself and for my wife. Uh, it has been a joy to gather with East Campus every Sunday. It's a joy to worship with you all. I think of even just uh, our kids have been coming, and my daughter Sawyer, she loves Renee Pickard. And Renee has just done a great job loving her, caring for her, and teaching her the truths of the Bible. And we are just, we're going to miss you guys, you all here. Uh, you're a great encouragement to us, and we are sad, um, sad to say goodbye. But uh, I wanted Doug to share, because we would love to see some of you on the 20th um, at this reception thing that we're going to do at Central Campus. And we'd love to get to hug you and say goodbye, share a little bit about where we're going, um, and then maybe invite you to come with us. Who knows? Maybe, maybe we'll get crazy. Um, but So we've been in a series in the book of Genesis. We've been looking at the first few chapters in the book of Genesis, and uh, we're going to be in Genesis 2 today, so if you want to turn there, um, you can do that right now. Uh, it's pretty easy. Uh, Genesis 2, probably on page 2 or 3 of the Bible. So if you're new to church or to Jesus, it's a pretty easy day to find your passage. Um, Genesis is the first book of the Bible, and there's two major themes. As we look at the beginning of Scripture, there's two major themes that strike us, that jump off the page. The first one is God's role as creator. God is the author and maker of all things. And what we find in Genesis 1 is God speaking and things coming into being. And we are struck by his power, by his creativity, and by his unique role in designing the creation. The other theme that we find in these first few chapters of the Bible are our role in creation. Our role in God's creation is unique and distinct from, say, the animals or the trees. What we find is that human beings have been made in the image of God that they are designed to reflect God to the world and to steward the world, to have dominion. And a couple weeks ago, we looked at Genesis 1 and, and looked through God as creator. And last week, we looked at the beginning of Genesis 2, Genesis 2, verses 1 to 3, and what we find is God resting. He worked creating the world in Genesis 1, and the beginning of Genesis 2 teaches us that he rests. And it's an invitation to us to learn as we work that we rest. And that brings us to our passage this morning, Genesis 2, verses 4 to 17. And so let's read this together. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the, heaven, or the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature." And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made it spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. 
a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pashan. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Hevala, where there is gold. And the gold, that it, and the gold of that land is good. Bedellum and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gahan. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river in the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Let me pray and ask for God's help as we learn to hear from his word. Father, we pause in this moment, having read and heard your word. We pause with gratitude. You have not left us in the dark. You have spoken. You have given us truth to wrap our hearts around. We thank you for the opportunity to gather as your people. And I pray, Holy Spirit, would you come and fill this space freshly. Would you invade our minds and hearts and very souls as we try and hear your word and not merely be hearers, but be doers of your word. Pray that you would encourage us to respond. And so we ask you for that and trust you to do something in this time for your glory and for your goodness. And in Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. Some of you may know this, but my wife went to college in Texas, Fort Worth, Texas, TCU, Texas Christian University. They're the horn frogs. Go frogs. And one of the things that she was, she was a, she studied social work, and one of her roles with the social work department was tutoring the football players, these big football players. And if you know my wife, she's this little, petite little thing. And so she got to tutor some of these football players, and it was a really interesting time at TCU because the team was winning, and it was probably the first time that TCU had a team that was getting national attention. And so she was tutoring these football players, and then on Saturday we'd watch them score touchdowns, and she'd be like, oh, I know that guy, just kind of like it was nothing. But one of the things that my wife learned is she learned a lot about the football world at TCU. They would tell her stories about what the football players could get away with. They would tell her kind of the shortcuts and the perks and all the different things. And one of the things that my wife learned about the TCU football world is that these players could really get away with anything they wanted as long as they were performing on the football field. If they were scoring touchdowns on Saturday, it didn't matter that they were terrible students. If they were sacking quarterbacks on the football field, it really didn't matter if they were getting into fights on the weekend or in trouble with the law. I know that this is not every football program, but at TCU, there was a great divide. There was a divide between a player's performance on the field and a player's performance off the field. There was a separation. What happened off the field really didn't matter. It was all, all that mattered, all that was important, all that was of utmost significance was what happened on the football field. 
And as we look at Genesis 2 and we think about our jobs and our work, we're going to encounter a similar divide. It's the divide between our work and our faith. And some people have talked about this divide as the division between the secular and the sacred. It's seeing a great separation between what happens on Sunday morning, what happens in the church, and what happens on Monday morning when we enter the workplace. And the temptation is to believe that our work doesn't really matter to God. That God really, at the end of the day, only cares with what happens on Sunday morning. He really cares with how well we lead a Bible study or how well we sing praises to him. But what happens on Monday when we step into the cubicle or when we meet with a client, that really doesn't matter to God. And the good news from our passage this morning is that that's not true. That our work actually does matter to God. That our work is significant to the creation. And God cares for it. And so we're going to look at why our work matters to God. And what we're going to find is that it's, it matters to God because it's essential to the Creator's design. God has woven into the creation the significance, the necessity, the requirement for our work. We're also going to learn that our work matters to God because work is part of our worship. It's a way that we can worship and serve our Creator. And then lastly, we're going to learn that God lovingly limits our work. And he he restricts our work. And what we find is that our work does matter to God, but it's not everything. That our work is not our life. God is. And so let's look at the first idea. Our work matters to God because our work is essential to the Creator's design. Look at verse 5. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. The scene that is painted by the scripture is an uncultivated land. It's an unrealized land. The creation has potential, but it's unrealized potential. For two reasons. First, because the Lord has not caused it to rain. But second, because there was no man to work the ground. The potential for God's creation was unrealized without a working human being. What we learn in Genesis 1 and 2 is that we've been created in the image of God. And that means if God is working, we have been created to work. But what's also true, and what we find in this passage, is that the creation itself has been designed to function that requires our work. That the creation needs our work to accomplish human flourishing. This is important for us to recognize, because apart from what some of us may think, work is not a curse. Work is not a result of the fall. Work existed before the fall. And this is important. A pastor in New York, Tim Keller, he says this of this idea. He says, it's as if 
God didn't quite finish creation, but he left the last part of it for man to do. It's almost as if you have an artist painting a wonderful canvas, a beautiful scene. And before he finishes, he steps to the side and invites someone else to finish. He hands the paint and the paintbrush, and the other person finishes it. That's what's happening in this passage. God is passing the paint to humans. Now, what are we saying? First, what this means is that our work is dignified. Our work is significant. It's important. The teacher who is working at a local high school, as she is shaping and molding young minds, as she teaches them how to write and how to do math, she is helping realize unrealized potential. As she comes alongside students that maybe are coming from a hard home life, she is helping a student realize unrealized potential. And we could go through every single vocation in this room and talk about how our work is helping realized, unrealized potential. The farmer, the architect, mechanic, accountant, police officer, all of our work is contributing to human flourishing, is helping the creation become what God has designed it to be. Now, the other thing that we can say when we talk about vocation, jobs, is some of us in this room don't have kind of a traditional job. Maybe we're retired, or maybe we have given our time to staying at home with our kids and working in the home. But my guess is that if you're in that category, you are still contributing to society, right? We wouldn't say that you, you're not contributing to society. A stay-at-home mom is involved in developing and shaping her kids, her home, and is also contributing to the community around her. All of our retired folks, I guarantee you're doing something with your time. And that is to say, this is just as applicable if that's you. That whatever we're doing, our work, our vocational calling is dignified. It's significant. It's significant because it's helping the creation become what God has hoped it to become. The second thing is that it establishes God's place in our work. The passage says that, yeah, it's unrealized because there's no man to work it, but it also says because the Lord has not caused it, has not caused the rain to fall. Humans are still dependent upon God. We're not saying that humans are just left to go do whatever they want and figure it out and accomplish what God couldn't. No, the artist supplies the paint. As the artist stands to the side, he gives the paint, the paintbrush. He supplies the utility to finish the painting. But truth be told, this is astonishing. If we really grab hold of this idea, the picture that emerges from Genesis 2 is the creator and the creature cooperating towards human flourishing. What we find is that God works with humans to complete all that creation should be. And this is awesome, right? Isn't that so cool? So our work does matter because it's woven into the creator's design. But our work also matters because it's a part of our worship. 
Jump down to verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. I love that. The Lord took the man and put him in the garden like a boss. Takes, he, he just takes the man like a chess piece, right? What we see, God gives Adam his position in the garden. And he gives him a job description. He says, work the garden. Keep the garden. Care for the garden. Tend to the garden. Help the garden become what it should be. What I have designed it to become. Now what's interesting is these two Hebrew terms are most of the time, when they're used together, they're a reference to human service of God, not agricultural work. There's something happening in the garden that is significant. One commentator writes, since there are other indications that the garden is being portrayed as sacred space, it is likely that the tasks given to Adam are of a priestly nature. Wow. That is caring for a sacred space. There is something happening in the garden, in Adam's work, that is sacred that is worship. Now what I want to do is zoom out a little bit and help us capture what's happening from a big picture, from a whole Bible uh, perspective. Because I think it's helpful. Because when we look at Genesis 2, we know that our experience is not the garden, right? We know that something has happened, something has gone tragically wrong, and God is planning to redeem and restore that. So Eden is often referred to as a sacred space, much like a temple or a church. Eden itself is a sacred place. It's a sanctuary for God, where God dwells, his presence dwells, and man works at the same time. But in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve reject God, and we call it the fall. Sin enters and corrupts the whole world, and Adam and Eve are cast out of the sanctuary, out of Eden. But God has a plan, and he establishes sacred spaces. He chooses the people of Israel, and he establishes sacred spaces, the tabernacle, the temple. And what is interesting is that there are symbols, and there are, uh, there are, there are things about the tabernacle and the temple that remind us of Eden. The artwork in the tabernacle and the temple are images from Eden. There are practices and uh, tools in the temple and the tabernacle that remind us, they point us back to Eden. But at the same time, and we see this very visibly in Israel's worship, the sacred space is separated from human work. There is a divide between the secular and the sacred. But Eventually, Jesus comes. He lives the perfect life. He dies the death we deserve, and he's raised from life. And this is so important in biblical history. It's a turning point. It's the new covenant of God has come. And what happens is God's people themselves become the sacred space. No longer is a temple needed. God's people themselves become the sacred space by the indwelling of the Spirit. 
And what this means, primarily, when the church gathers, there is a sacred space where God's presence is dwelling with his people. And we are experiencing a true kind of worship. But, if you think about this, this is really important. As the church gathers, there is a unique experience happening when indwelled believers are gathering to worship, but when they leave and enter into the workplace, they are carrying the presence of God with them. And what we see in our time and place is the process of trying to get the creation back to what God intended for it where he has full presence of God and work at the same time. And so our work is so important in this process because the Bible's vision is a complete restoration of these things. The new earth is a place where God dwells and we work together. There is no more divide between the sacred and the secular. And so our work matters because it's woven into the whole biblical story and it's a part of our worship to the creator. My wife and I have owned a home for about four years now since we moved here. And my dad, when we thought about owning a home, he, he said, you know, he made a dad comment. He said, you know, there are some per perks to renting, right? You don't have to take care of a house. A house is a lot of work. And like a young foolish man, I brushed it off and said, whatever, I, I'll be fine. And what I've learned is a house is a lot of work, right? Especially come fall, when all those leaves fall, and you got to rake them, oh my goodness, it's, you got to mow the lawn, it feels like something's breaking all the time, the AC's breaking, the boiler's not, not ready for the season, or your four-year-old peels off the paint before she goes to sleep. True story. So there's always something to fix, and something to take care of. But, what you also learn as you inhabit a house is there's something more than just taking care of the physical space, right? There's creating a home. Pretty soon what happens is memories are attached to the physical space that you've been taking care of. Hey, this is, this is where we cried together. This is where we laughed till our bellies almost burst. And the physical space takes on something more you begin to realize that you're creating a space of safety, of fellowship, of community, a space of love. And I think sometimes the temptation, when we think about our jobs and our work, is to think of them just as a paycheck, as a means to an end. If I can, if I can just get past these five days of work and make it to the weekend, I'll be good. I've thought that sometimes. <laughs> But what this passage is inviting us to consider is that there is something about our work that is more. There's something about our work that is a part of our worship of God. That creating that awesome spreadsheet can be created as an act of worship of the Creator God. That fixing a car engine can be done in a way that is worshipful to our God. Now, you might be wondering, what about me? I, I feel unfulfilled in my job. And I think 
there's a part of this conversation that has to do with fitness, right? How you're wired, how you've been built. I remember when I was in college, my first self-designation of, of a major was accounting. And if you know me, you, you would know that that would have been a bad fit. I would have died. I'd have been, it would have been torture. Detail is not my thing, and I like, I starve to be around people. And what I hear is a, an accountant spends more time with numbers. There is, there is a conversation of fitness. But what I think our passage is inviting us to do is to not let feelings drive your thinking. When it comes to our work, we want to be careful that we don't let our feelings drive the way we're approaching our job. And what this passage is inviting us to do is to think about our job as a place of worship. That it is a place where we can serve the Lord and worship him as we work. And so our work is essential to the creator's design. Also, our work is a part of our worship. And so we can say our work matters to God. But it's not everything. And at the end of this passage, what we learn is that God restricts our work, ultimately for our good. And in verses 16 to 17, we find the first commandment in Scripture. It says, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die first commandment in the Bible. And the first thing God says is he communicates provision. He communicates freedom. He says every tree in the garden you can eat except for one tree. He restricts Adam to not eat from one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Because this tree would grant knowledge that is only fit for the creator. The creature could not withstand the knowledge that this tree would grant. One commentator writing about this passage paraphrases a guy named Diedrich Bonhoeffer. And he says, Diedrich Bonhoeffer rightly observes that symbolically the middle of Adam's world was not himself, but life, the very presence of God. He's talking about the restriction, is life, the very presence of God. The tree of knowledge as a prohibition signifies that man's limitation as a creature is in the middle of his existence, not on the edge. Adam would wake up every morning and see the tree, and he would recognize his own limitation. He would see the tree and remember that he needed the creator. He would see the tree and remember his covenant relationship with God. And that's what God is doing here. He's establishing a covenant with Adam and Eve. And just like Adam and Eve had a covenant relationship with God, so do we. But our covenant reminder is not a tree, it's a cross. The cross, where Jesus pays the price for our sin, reminds us that we are forgiven. 
The cross where Jesus suffers in our place reminds us that we have been redeemed from slavery to sin. We have been redeemed from Satan. The cross where Jesus reconciles us to the Father and we realize and remember that we are sons and daughters of God. What does this mean? Friends, this means that we are more than our jobs. Our jobs are not our lives. Our worth is not in our work. That our work matters, but it's not everything. Our work is not our worth. Jesus is. And when we try and find our worth in our work, when we try to chase after significance and uh, salvation through our work, it crumbles. It crushes us. It's like trying to clean the kitchen with one paper towel. Have you ever tried that? It doesn't work. Because a paper towel is not designed to clean your whole kitchen. In the same way, our jobs are not designed to provide our salvation. Our jobs are not designed to be our life. Jesus is. And the cross is a reminder of that. Every morning, we want to look to the cross and remember that we are more than our jobs. That we have become sons and daughters of God. Now, you might be thinking, hey, you don't know my job right now. We just lost someone, and we're starting this new marketing campaign, and I, like, it's crazy right now. And you're telling me to try and recognize that my job's not my life, but it really feels like my life. A couple questions. Are you trying to function at a creator pace or a creature pace? Are you remembering that you are not defined by your work. You know, there are seasons when we got to hit the gas. we got to work some extra hours. Maybe you're in med school. you got to do some extra stuff. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that, but we want to be careful that we don't set up a rhythm of life, of work, that is, help, like, is putting us in a place to where we're finding our life in our work. So practically, you know, this might look like, hey, at 6 o'clock, I'm going to shut off my work. Every night at 6, no matter what's happening, I'm going to shut her down. Or maybe on the weekends, hey, I'm not going to look. My work email is going away. Because our, our work, our, our broken, twisted hearts have a way of trying to validate ourselves in our work or save ourselves through our work. And the question becomes, how can you put work in its place? How can you put work in its rightful place? Because our work matters. That's what we're saying. Our work matters to God. It's significant. He's woven it into the creation. Creation itself is designed to require our work. It's also an opportunity for us to worship. It's what we're saying. Our work matters. But it's not everything. And we ought to set guards in our lives to not allow work become our life. And to wake up every day and remember, just like Adam, looking at the tree, to wake up every day and look to the cross and remember that we are more than our jobs. Let's pray.
Uh, Father, we thank you for uh, we thank you for Jesus, who is our life. We thank you for your word, that you are faithful and helpful as we try and fumble through this thing called life and wrestle our sin to the ground and cling tightly to Christ. Just even thank you for that song, He Will Hold Me Fast. I pray that as we work this week, we would realize that our work matters to you, that it's important, that it's significant. And no matter what happens, if it becomes our life, if it is a place of just stress and turmoil, I pray that we would remember that phrase. Jesus will hold me fast. And we thank you that we are more than our jobs and that Jesus offers our life. And we pray in his name. Amen.